Well, I'm excited to be able to continue in our study of Titus this morning. Um, If you were not with us a few weeks before when we were talking about Titus, we were discussing the qualification of elders. And this Sunday, we have the opportunity to now dive a little bit deeper um, into verses 10 through 16 of Titus chapter 1. So this Sunday, we are officially ending Titus chapter one. I'm super excited about that. And if you need a Bible right now, what we would like to do is go ahead and raise your hand so that we can get a Bible to you. And that way we can dive into the text together. Again, we'll be in Titus chapter one, verses 10 through 16. If you're watching online, we want to thank you guys for joining us as well. So again, as I mentioned A few weeks ago, we went over the qualifications as well as the attributes and characteristics of elders. And this morning, we're going to look at a different spectrum. We're going to look at the polar opposite of what that character of an elder is, the attributes of that elder is. And this morning, we'll be focusing on the danger of false teachers, the dangers of false teachers. So again, if you will, turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. And this morning, I want to go over three things in particular. The first one is we want to know and understand what the objectives and the motives of these false teachers are. The objectives and the motives of these false teachers. Secondly, we want to discuss how we must deal with false teachers within the church how we must deal with false teachers in the church. And then lastly, how to not be deceived by false teachers. Hopefully that gives you some time to get to Titus chapter one. Again, this is the letter that Paul writes to Titus and this is what he says starting in verse 10. He says, for there are many rebellious people, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprimand them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men, who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And here's verse 16. They profess to know God, but their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Let's pray together. Holy Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, I ask that you hide me behind your cross. May you be seen. May you speak through me. May these not be my words, but may these be your words. Lord, and I pray that you allow us this morning to be effectual doers of your word and not simply hearers that delude themselves. For it is in the doing of the word that we are blessed. Strengthen us now by your grace. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
1861, the Prince of Preachers, Charles H. Spurgeon, in his sermon, The Waiting of the Garden, stated this regarding sound Christian ministry. And I quote, a ministry that never uproots will never water. A ministry that does not pull down will never build up. He who knoweth not how to pluck up the plants which God hath not planted scarcely understandeth how to be a worker of God in his vineyard. Our ministry ought always to be a killing one and a healing one. A ministry which kills all false hopes, blights all wrong confidences, and weeds out all foolish trust. While at the same time, it trains up the feeblest shoot of real hope and tends comfort and encouragement even to the weakest of the sincere followers of Christ. End quote. You see, false hope will always overpromise, but never deliver. It will masquerade itself as a viable option, but yet when it comes down to providing substance, it lacks all confidence and assurance. If we're not careful and aware of what true hope is, we can be pulled away from the truth. False teaching to many people can start off very subtle, very inconspicuous in many ways. It can sound right, and for some false teachers, they can even look the part. However, it is not until their lives are hard-pressed and with pressure through time, it will ultimately reveal the matters of the heart. The Apostle Paul in these verses will lay before us a few things that we must pay close attention to. The text will show us the following things, and if you're taking notes, follow me here. The first thing that it's going to show us is who these false teachers are and what their motives and their objectives are. Secondly, it'll show us how we must deal with these false teachers, how we must deal with these false teachers. And then thirdly, how we are to detect wolves in sheep's clothing. So if you will, pick me up in verse 10. Again, this is Paul writing to Titus, a young preacher on the island of Crete. For there are many rebellious people, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Paul begins here by making known the quantity of these false teachers. He says that there are many, not some, not a few, but many. So clearly there, this is not an isolated event on this island. Crete being 160 miles in width and about 37 miles in north to south orientation, there were many Judaizers and, and those of the circumcision party that were getting into these churches. And I do want to say, I want to thank Brother Stamper because after the first service, he came to me and he said, hey, I just want to let you know, in the first service, you said it was 35,000 miles. It's not 35,000. So I say that to say this, being open and willing to be able to hear and, and humble yourself when somebody brings you something with numbers is important. 
And that's something that we should all do. And so I want to make sure I give y'all the right number. It's 160 miles in width. And then Paul mentions these attributes of these men. He says that these men are rebellious men, that they're empty talkers, and that they're deceivers. And clearly now, if you hear these words, they're not kind words. There are words that you would want somebody to say about you. And that's rightfully so. But however, I want you to understand what was happening in the text. This word rebellious in the Greek is an interesting word. That word means that this individual is not made subject to a particular thing. That this individual is unrestrained and free from authority and guidance. Their allegiance is not to the scriptures, nor are they willing to submit to leadership. If I were to uh, put, a, put in an example for you, I would say something like this. If anybody has ever joined the military, you took the oath you took an oath to protect and to defend the Constitution of the United States against enemies both foreign and abroad. And, and what's interesting is that for individuals who commit treason, ultimately the result of treason comes through and by a rebellious heart. They become unhinged from the authority that they swore under that they would serve and that they would protect and in the same way, Paul makes mention that this idea of being unhinged from scriptural and doctrinal authority is in fact rebellious. And these false teachers play the part well when deep down in their hearts, they have no true allegiance, that they are not bounded by the scriptures. They're not under the authority of elders and church leadership. And they ruffle feathers and stir up whatever mess they can in order to cause others to pull away from the truth. And this is why Paul will make clear and certain in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, that the life of an elder, what it must look like, and that it must be firmly rooted in the scriptures. They must stick to what is trustworthy, and that is the gospel. That the true position of every single believer is to be a slave to Christ and not a slave to our own devices. We must be as followers of Jesus Christ submitted under the scriptures. And, why, and while Paul is discussing these matters, we can begin to recollect on the moment where Titus in chapter one, he makes this statement out of the jump. He says, Paul, a bondservant, a dwellos, a slave of God. He makes mention who he is under submission to. And anyone that is not a slave of Christ, that is not willing to submit under authority, friends, they are unhinged and rebellious men. And Paul continues on. He says, these men are also empty talkers, that they're deceivers. And then he says something interesting. He says, especially those of the circumcision. What's interesting is that although there are many rebellious men who are creeping into these home churches, he specifically calls out the men of the circumcision party. And in order for us to understand Paul's familiarity and frustration with this group, it's going to require that we dive deeper into the text and do some Bible Olympics. So we're going to have to flip through some of the scriptures here. 
It's recorded throughout the book of Acts, Paul's missionary journey and missions to the Gentile people. That there were many Jews and Gentiles that would come to faith through the ministry of Paul, Barnabas, and Peter. However, there are going to be some Jews that insisted on sabotaging the very work of the gospel and attempting to undo everything that Paul and Barnabas and the other ministers of the gospel set forth in order to bring people to salvation. Check out what Luke documents in Acts chapter 13, verse 44. He says these words. The next Sabbath, nearly all the city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Here's another situation, Acts chapter 14, verses one through two. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a way that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. Check out verse two. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brothers. These non-believing Jews were spewing these empty lies and this religious babble and had no substance to their talk. Their sole motivation in stirring up what Paul and Barnabas were trying to establish and plant within the hearts of these men and women was to be able to plant confusion, to plant confusion. This very fact speaks to how wicked and deceitful these false teachers truly are. And because these men's hearts are ill-intended and not submitted to the truth of the text, Paul informs Titus that these particular men must be silenced. They must be silenced. Go to verse 11. This is what Paul says. He says, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. After Paul makes clear who these false teachers are at their core, that they have no allegiance to truth, they're not under sound teaching, they are not under church leadership, he says that these men must be silenced. Now this word silence is interesting in the Greek. It, this word is epitomizo. It, it means to muzzle or to close someone's mouth. Paul spares no expense with these men who have crept into these home churches. Paul says these men must be shut up. If you ever want permission to tell someone to shut up, there it is in the text. (laughs) And so he lays before them this this, this reality that, that these false teachers must be silenced wherever they are. Why? Because the gospel message, the truth of the gospel is at stake. That if they are not silenced, these lies will begin to spew. They'll begin to creep out. They'll begin to grow. And they'll begin to fester within the hearts of men and women. Paul says these words harshly that they must be pulled out. Now, why must they be dealt with so harshly? Why must they be dealt with with such intensity? Friends, because the ramifications of not uprooting false teaching will cause the unraveling of families and churches. 
Now, I want to come back to that word silence a little later on. And and the reason why I want to is because I believe that you will see regarding this word silence or quiet it down, how it interacts with both the believer as well as the non-believer. It is evident that these false teachers are causing chaos in these home churches. And the result of their lives, uh, their lies rather, is families are becoming unraveled. Paul uses this term upsetting whole families. Now this word can be a bit confusing because it can be mistaken for some, if you're reading in the English, it could be translated as an emotional upsetting. However, when you understand this word in the Greek, it does not mean emotional. This word actually means destroying or ruining faith. So imagine these families that are hearing this false teaching in the church, they're not emotionally upset. What's happening is their faith slowly but surely is being unraveled and destroyed. And herein lies Paul's urgency to Titus. And I can imagine Paul trying to reach through this letter, taking the shoulders of young Titus and say, Titus, this is the reason why you need to get elders established in these churches. Because if you don't, these churches are going to lose. These men and women are going to fall away from the faith and we cannot let that happen. Remember, the elders serve as this authoritative guide. They serve as this guard of the body, protecting each and every one of the members that are in the body of Christ. Imagine a father not in the home. You can read statistics, you can look at our culture today, and you can see that the lack of presence of a father in the home can cause the detriment of children. I'll give you some statistics. One here is that the lack or presence of a father in the home for young boys causes these young boys to go to gangs and gang affiliation. Why does that happen? Because those young boys are looking for models. They're looking for mentorship. They're looking for guidance and they're looking for guidance in all the wrong places. Here's another one. There's an increase in behavioral issues with a child when proper discipline is not implemented in the home. You can look at our culture now. You can look at the school students just doing whatever they want to do, however they want to do it. Why? Because dad's not found in the home. And lastly, the one that really took me off was this one. The rate of incarceration increases due to the lack of a father figure in the home. Do you see the pattern of a father being in the home? And now I want to parallel that to the elders being in the church. What is Paul saying here? In his urgent and brass tone, he is saying that if you let any Joe blow, creep into these churches without guidance and sound doctrine and sound teaching, you're letting these families go aruck. And we cannot let this happen. Paul is serious about this matter. And as pastors and leaders in the church, we too must be hyper diligent in guarding against false teaching. And friends, if I can say this morning, for those of you who are members of this church, you too 
must be diligent in being able to guard against false teaching. Can I just give you one way that you can do that? One way we had at the nine o'clock service, we had a how to study the Bible series. If you are part of that, you are actually able to go through the scriptures and understand how to study your Bible properly. You have one at the 11 o'clock service where you have the opportunity to know how to study your Bible. Why am I saying that? Because if you know how to study your Bible accurately, it allows you to move away from error and into the truth of God's word. Paul mentions that these false teachers are far off base. And he then says that their motivation, check it out, is for sordid gain. Check out the text. It says that their teachings are contrary to the gospel and it's contrary to the gospel so that they would be able to profit in their pocketbooks. Now, for some of you, you may know what that looks like. Probably have seen some commercials on some certain televangelist networks. If you buy this bottle of oil that's been prayed over by the top pastors in America for only $20, you will be able to have this special anointing oil. Or maybe this one. This water was brought to you guys from Jerusalem and we got it from the water that Jesus was walking in. And because it was the water that Jesus was walking in, how they attached Jesus' name to you like that. And they didn't begin to sell this merchandise. And the reality is that many people who are not sound in the faith who are looking for hope will bite at anything they can because they have no hope in them. And so rather than trying to prostitute the gospel, Paul is saying we must be fervent in being able to teach the gospel so that people are not hoodwinked and bamboozled and their money is going awry. Why? Because the gospel is enough. It's not Christ plus anything else. Jesus plus nothing else is the gospel and the gospel alone. And friends, we have to make sure that we are sharing this information with other people because the reality is they're buying this junk and they think that it's working when the reality is the truth. All they need is Christ alone. Let's keep pushing Titus chapter one, verse 12 through 13. It says this, one of them, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprimand them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. What a powerful and forth-telling statement that is. Crete's own Epimenides, a poet in Crete, wrote these very words. And what Epimenides characterizes, Paul confirms. Paul says the culture of this island is notorious for being habitual liars, murderous and violent men of the highest degree and greedy beyond control. And this statement was so widely known that one scholar records that the Greek world accepted that statement as true. And what nails the coffin in all of this is that verse 13, Paul says, after having read all of these Greek philosophers, all of these individuals, he says, this testimony is in fact true. 
However, I, I don't want you to just stay on that part. Because what is very encouraging is that what Paul lays out as he moves to this next part is he's laying out a bit of grace. Check out what the text says. Verse 13, it says, for this reason, reprimand them so that they may be sound in the faith. Reprimand who? Those in the body who are believing these lies and false teachings, option one, or is he saying reprimand the false teachers? Now, many scholars have debated and they've argued that, that, that he could potentially be talking to both. He could be potentially talking to both groups. Why? I, I, here, here's why. One group in particular may have been teachers that have been under this wrong teaching and they think that it's right. They think that they got it together. But then when people hear it, it's off base. He's saying if they are truly believers, the Holy Spirit will convict them that when you bring the truth to them, their hearts will be turned to the truth. The other end is if there are individuals that are sitting under an unsound teaching, that these men and women, when you come alongside them and bring the text and you show them error, by the power of the Spirit, there will be conviction. And they will turn from that error and they will turn to the truth. Church, the goal for those who are being deceived by fake news is that we must bring the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. The only way that you can combat a lie is with the truth. For instance, in grade school, everybody is going to school. In grade school and math class, uh, math class, one of the things that your teacher would do if you had a really good math teacher, they would have you do your work in one column, and then on the next column, they would have you show your proof. You would work your problem out, and then you get to the end of your answer, and then on the other side, you do the same exact thing. But you're showing your proof rather than just jumping to the answer. The reason why the proof column is so important is that the teacher is able to come alongside you, and if there is error in your calculation, they can find it. Once they find that error, then they can show you, this is what you did wrong, this is what you need to do. So what is Paul saying in the text regarding this? He's saying the elders, the purpose of the elders and the leaders in the church are to come alongside your life, show you the text, help you in the scriptures, grow you in the faith. And when they see moments in your life where you're veering away from the gospel or maybe you've earned, you've looked at something wrong and misinterpreted something from the text, they can come alongside you, show you where that's wrong and replace it with the truth. That is the work of the elders. And friends, let me tell you, that is grace. Therein lies the grace of God. Because if it was not grace, you would still remain in error. Some of you may have come from churches or backgrounds such as the Catholic church or maybe the Muslim faith or maybe the, the, the Hindu faith or whatever it may be and you were in error and the power of the Holy Spirit got a hold of your life by someone sharing the gospel with you. When they shared the gospel with you, the Holy Spirit opens up your eyes to know the truth of the word. You turn from error and then you walk to the truth. That is the grace of God. 
And God's grace reaches down into the muck and the mire and it picked you up. It picked me up. It turned us around and it pointed us to the person and the work of Christ. Friends, it is clear that those in whom God chooses, he calls. And those in whom God calls, he cleans. And those in whom he cleans, he keeps. Let's keep moving to verse 14. It says this, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Paul's objective in this section is to hinge the believer in the truth of who saved them. Their affections and their focus should be upon the teaching of scripture and not the skeptics. The moment that we begin to add anything to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we lose the gospel. One of the main issues that were stirring up during this time, during Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, was this topic of salvation. Uh, it, it got so bad that the apostles and the elders of the churches got together to discuss this at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And during that time, non-believing Jews would attempt to dissuade believers from the truth by saying that salvation came through the circumcision. However, men like Barnabas and Paul and Peter testified to the work that God was doing amongst the Gentiles. You see, for Cornelius and his family receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10 to the large crowds that came to faith in Iconium, Gentiles were being saved. And it was not through them being circumcised. It was through grace alone, by faith alone, to Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Paul's argument as well as Peter's testimony was extremely clear. Salvation is not a means of Jewishness. It's not a means of religious customs. It is not a means of tradition. It is not a means of work and how good you're at it. No, the fact of the matter is you couldn't do absolutely nothing about your salvation. It was God in his goodness, God in his mercy, God in his kindness that saw you, dragged you to himself so that you would become the righteousness of Christ. Peter would confirm this work that the Holy Spirit was doing in Acts chapter 15, verse 11. Check out what he says. He says, but we believe. Now understand, he is standing amongst the apostles. He is standing amongst the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And so when he says we believe, he's talking about in unity by the spirit of God. We confirm, we believe, we attest to this. Check it out. That we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they, the Gentiles, are too. This agreement in unity in the faith and in the spirit was accepted by the apostles and the elders. It was so much so accepted that James would have to send a letter to the churches letting them know, listen, this is what we have agreed upon by the spirit of God himself. That salvation is not through circumcision. Salvation is in Christ alone. And then James would go further in his letter to say, if there is anyone that comes to you and tells you anything other than what we've taught you, know that they did not come from us, that they're from the enemy. I want to show you something real fast, the timeline here, if we could put the slide up. The Jerusalem Council took place in and around A.D. 48, A.D. 48. 
I want you to notice where Paul was released from prison and writes the letter to Titus. AD 64. That's in and around a 15 year gap. 15 years have passed since this matter of salvation was stamped and sealed and this is the truth. So you can understand Paul's aggravation with these men. 15 years and you still think that you're right? The apostles have agreed. The elders have agreed. The spirit of God has confirmed that there is no other way to salvation but by Christ. And friends, let me be very clear with you. If there are individuals who are not submitted under the authority of the church leadership and scripture, they'll fall away just like those others. Why? Because when the Lord officially sealed the canon, there was no other scriptures to be written. What does that mean? That means that there's nothing else you can add to the gospel. I'm gonna go back to that again. There's nothing you can add to the gospel. It's not Jesus plus anointing oil. It's not Jesus plus the sackcloth. It's not Jesus plus tradition. It's not Jesus plus anything else. Why? Because Christ's work was finished. You rest on that. You settle on that. You sit on that firmly. Why? Because that's the enduring truth. And friends, may I say that the spirit of God will always point to Christ and the spirit of God will always point to the truth. Colossians chapter two, verse 20 through 22 says this. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, is, why as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle this, do not taste this, do not touch that, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. Check out what he says in accordance with the commandments and teachings of man. That's what Paul was talking about. You start trying to bank your book on all this other work, you miss it. Paul continues on in verse 15, check it out. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And this is the part that blows your mind, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Paul at this point is getting to the meat of the issue here. He makes it known that the issue of what is pure versus what is unclean is a matter of what is within. This, friends, is a matter of the heart. What are the true motives of this person? What is driving them to do what they are doing? The real question that we should be asking is, who is driving the motives? Is Christ, our Lord and Savior, driving what we do to live the way that we live? Or is it the master deceiver, Satan himself, who is driving you to do what you do? For if you are pure in all things and submitted as a slave to the scriptures, even when you may have been taught something that is wrong, because the spirit of God is in you, 
He will convict you and conform you to live out the gospel the way that you are supposed to. Now, I want to go back to this word silence. We talked about it earlier. I want to come back to that. We put a pin in it and let's take that pin out. Silence. And the reason why I want to show you this difference uh, with the word silence or quiet it down that you'll see in the text is because there is going to be two separate reactions from these groups. You're going to see the Jewish believers or the Jewish Christians respond in one way in regards to being silenced or quieted down. And then you're going to see non-believing Jews respond differently to this issue of being quieted down. So in Acts chapter 11, I'll take you there. There's a scene where Peter is reporting what he has witnessed as he's been ministering to the Gentile people. And he's reporting to the Jerusalem council that the Gentiles are coming to salvation in Christ. And in the midst of that, some Jewish believers began to take issue with what Peter was sharing. Check it out. Again, Jewish believers were taking issue with what Peter was saying at the Jerusalem council. However, after a detailed report, the Holy Spirit demonstrates his power. And what I want you to catch here is the response of the Jewish believers. Here it is, Acts chapter 11, verse 18. And when they, Jewish believers, heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. When Peter first shared the gospel with the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, he had his Jewish friends with him. And no Jew expected Gentiles to come to salvation. Yet they could not deny what they saw. So the true question here, friends, this morning is, why were they quieted or silenced? Friends, I believe that they were quieted because they too in their heart had issue with what they saw. These Jewish believers saw that these Gentiles were receiving the Holy Spirit and were exalting God in their own native language. And to the Jews, it was unacceptable because how can they, how can they receive the gospel? How can they become saved? This is our gospel. This is our message. However, God flips it on the head to look at the response after they are convicted of the truth in silence. What happened? They praised God. They saw it, they had an issue in their heart, but then they got silence in their hearts and then all of a sudden they begin to thank you, Lord. We, we, we confirm that this is the work of the Spirit of God. Check out John chapter 16, verse 13 through 14 if you don't believe what I'm saying. Uh, check this out. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And check this out. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for he will take from mine and will disclose it to you. So you see, when the Holy Spirit deals with believers, he's dealing with them in conviction and into conformity. Now, that's that silenced. That is that quieted down. 
I now want us to look at the quieted down or the silence regarding non-believers. Check out verse 11 again, where Titus is talking to, well, Paul, Paul, excuse me, is talking to Titus. He says these words, they must be silenced. That silence is epitomizo. That is being muzzled. Shut up, closed. Now, notice there is no inward conviction with these non-believing Jews because the truth is not in them. There is no gauge in their conscience, only evil intent in order to disrupt the work of God. We can see this disruption in Acts 14, verses one through two, check it out. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a way, check it out, that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brothers. This is why Paul says to the pure, All things are pure. The question is, who is your allegiance to? The way that you can pick out a false teacher is seeing who their allegiance is to. You'll see it in their words. You'll see it in their actions. Because the reality is, ultimately, what is in you will flow out of you. Paul says it best in Romans chapter six, verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, check this out, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. The reality is every one of us in this room at one point in time was an enemy of God. And it took the Holy Spirit to get a hold of your life, to open up your eyes, to see your jacked upness, your messed upness, your brokenness, and turn you on into the Lord. And that is only done by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, due to the choosing of the Father. Why is this so important? Because obedience, friends, doesn't come through behavioral modification. If you are truly a believer in Christ, your transformation takes place from the inside out, not from the outside in. This is why the Pharisees were so huge on ceremonial cleansing, because it's an outside working. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? When the Spirit is saying, it's not what you can do, you can't do anything. It's all based upon what I can do, saith the Lord. takes a holy God to see an unholy and unworthy man and woman to impute his own righteousness upon them, not yourself. You can't work yourself into salvation, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how many degrees you have, no matter how many seminary certifications you attain, That means absolutely nothing if you do not have Christ. Let's wrap it up in verse 16. He says, they profess to know God, 
but their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. I love Paul's words in this text. He says, they profess to know God, but their deeds deny him. They profess to know God, but their deeds deny him. Intellectually, they're familiar with God. They've read and studied history. They know him well. They've seen what he does, but applicably, they are foreign because they don't know him. Ceremonially, they're clean on the outside. They look good. They dress the part. They act the part. They say the right things. I'm blessed and highly favored in the Lord. Hallelujah. But yet their actions show something completely different. You know some of those folks. Come on, let's, let's, not, be, let's not be frank about it. You know them. You've seen them. You've heard them. The only thing that is able to authenticate a true believer is the Holy Spirit. You can't just talk the talk and not walk the walk. And this is what Paul is trying to get the church to understand. Listen, your culture is wicked and it's crazy. And and as believers, you can't look this way. You must look this way. Why? Because the grace of God has saved you. It is the blood of Christ that has redeemed you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4 says this, the one who comes says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. I'm going to say that again. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Ultimately, this statement deals with how what I know translates to what I do. But the thing that is translating this information, friends, is the heart. It's the heart. If the heart is convinced of the truth, then you will live well. Why? Because of the spirit of God that is within you, that is both convicting and convincing you of the truth. No matter how bad you've messed up or you failed, the fact that your compass rose is settled and anchored on Christ, it will always point you back to him. What can separate me from the love of God? It's not height, not death. What, what can, nothing can separate you from the, from, from, from the love of God. If you are his, and even if you do all the wrong stuff in the world, there is something in you called the Holy Spirit that will pull you back. Get a hold of your life. Why? Because whom God calls is his. My wife and I recently got an American Mastiff, uh, and, and these dogs can get big. And right now, he's about 14 months old, so he's about this small. And one of the trainers that we have, he told us, in order for you to make sure that you train your dog well, you have to make sure that you keep them close to the leash. Because if you allow them to kind of go and be unhinged, they'll just do whatever they want to do. And by the time they get to 180 pounds, you got a dog that's going to get you into some trouble. So in order for you to train him well, keep him next to you. When you take a step, he takes a step. 
When you say sit, he sits. When you say go, he goes. When you say jump, he jumps. That is what Paul is ultimately talking to us about elders. What is he saying? This is what he's saying. The elders of the church are the guards by which keep you in place under the submission of the Lord that as you are walking in sync and step with the Lord, even when you back off, they'll pull you close. Uh, 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 uh. It's, it's both that loving rebuke, but yet that grace to say, ah, come back. Don't go too far. See, it, it takes someone who loves you enough to pull you close and show you your error. And when they show you your error in love, they embrace you. Why? Because they too experience the grace of God that when they fell short, when they messed up, when they sinned, that someone pulled them aside. Someone loved on them enough. Someone brought them to the scriptures, showed them what it is. And then from there, they're walking with you and doing life with you step and step and step. That, friends, is the grace of God. It is a beautiful thing to know that God in his wisdom and in his mercy and kindness left us the guardrails called elders in order to help lead the church. This is the thing that Paul was letting Titus know. Listen, these are young churches. And if you let any just average Joe Blow come in, they're gonna pull them away. But Titus, you got to love them well. And you need to find men who have character, whose word stands on the truth of the text. And when you begin to see those men and women fall astray, going back to the things they used to do in Cretan culture, you bring them close. You say, no, 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 no. You are a child of God. That's not how you act. That's not what you do. This is what you do. This is how you live. This is how you respond. Because friends, if you do not have elders in the church who know this word, who love you well, and who serve you to the glory of God to see your life be sanctified by the spirit, you end up having individuals like we see on these televangelist networks, false hopes, trusting in things that have no validity, trusting in things that will cause them to fall to the wayside. It is our duty as people and children of God to trust this word. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. After the apostles all died, there was no more scripture that's written. This is why you pray for your Catholic brothers and sisters. Your neighbors who may be in your neighborhood. The Jehovah's Witness who come and knock on your door two at a time with some pretty cool bikes. You love on your neighbors and you let them know, hey, hey, I, I hear what you're saying. Let me introduce you to somebody named Jesus. See, because the thing is, all of these other religions acknowledge Jesus as some form of teacher or some sort of good servant. But none of them accept him as Messiah. And when you understand that Jesus Christ is the one and only true living God... Everything else changes. We must be diligent, friends, in understanding that this is the text that's going to guide you, lead you in your brokenness, in your messed upness. Why? Because you can always run to this. You have elders in this church that are praying for you daily, meeting weekly, seeking the Lord so that they can know how to best serve this church, how to best serve this body, and they're willing to come alongside you. 
Let's stand all over the building. It's my prayer this morning. That if there may be people that you know. That are not hinged in the text. That you pray for. You may have some neighbors. That are Muslim. Or Jehovah's Witness. You, you may have some neighbors or family members that are attending churches that you know aren't teaching the gospel. Guess what God has given us the opportunity to do this morning? Pray for them. Why? Because the work of convicting and conforming is not on you. It's not on me. That work is on the Holy Spirit alone. And because the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God to know what God is wanting to do, he gives you and I the opportunity to participate in these things so that as you're praying for your neighbor, you're planting gospel seeds. You're planting gospel seeds. You're planting gospel seeds. And what does the scriptures tell us? We have the opportunity to plant. We have the opportunity to water. But who provides the increase? God. So what are some seeds that we can plant the word? What are some seeds that we can plant prayer? What are some seeds that we can plant love? Because the same way that God's grace brought you is the same way that God's grace can bring them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word that anchors us, your word that keeps us, Lord, that we can say, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, where would we be? God, we thank you that you called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. That, Lord, we have the ability, Lord, to live lives well to the glory of God. Why? Not because we did anything, but because you did everything. Help us to rest in that. Help us to sit in that. Help us to, to relish in that, Father God, that, that, that you did the work, not us. We can never do it. God, we pray for our neighbors, those in our community, those at our workplaces, those in our family who may be far from the truth. They may be unhinged. And God, we pray that as we're praying for them, Father God, and introducing the gospel that, to them, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you woo them to yourself. You bring them and draw them to yourself because only you can do it. Lord, it's in only in your name, in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said amen and amen. Listen, we love you guys and we'll see you next week. Blessings.